You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 193 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Uh, I'm okay, Val, you know, in an okay sort of way, yes. What's been happening in the world of Al? Uh, well, I, I think if any, if you're anyone's, you know, with me on social media, you'll know that write a book with Al, hashtag write a book with Al is, uh, is continuing. And, um, some of our participants mm. are doing extraordinarily well with, you know, two, 3000 words a day, which just yes. blows my mind. Um, and others like me are kind of trickling along at about 500 average, which is, you know, fine. I'm, um, as long as I'm averaging around the 500, I'm okay at the moment because I'm also copy editing the second book of the Adaban Cipher and um, preparing for some upcoming workshops that I have. So, you know, there's a lot going on. I, I think it's one of those things that, you know, I, 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 um, I received an email one day from, from someone who was unhappy with me. I mean, hard oh. to imagine, Val. I know. Like really? really. Who well, they were. Who would be unhappy with you? Who would be unhappy with me? Um, I was. It was. It was a little while ago, and I was writing about um, word counts uh, for something else. Like I was doing some other thing, and yeah. uh, this particular person took umbrage with the fact that I was writing every day, and they said to <laughs> me that you know some of us have jobs, and um, I didn't. Oh respond. my. God. I know. I didn't respond because I. Are you serious? I wasn't sure I'd be able to hold myself back, but um, so I didn't respond. Yeah. But I think it's really important to recognise that um, that uh, everyone has a job <laughs> of some kind, um, yeah. and that I do have a job. And uh, not only is my job obviously <gasps> writing books and and all of those things, but I also have other jobs that I do as well. And I I I, I feel like I mean it's the internet, so you know you do. You, you do get people who are unhappy with you. Um, and I think the best thing with that is to do what I did, which was delete the yes. email without responding. Um, oh, my goodness. But, I, I, yeah, I think it's um, it's very easy, I think, to you look at You are one of other... the busiest people I know. Uh, look, Sorry. You know, I, I know that. You and I know that. But I, I think oh. that the, the difficulty is I think that there's always that sense of looking at what other people are doing and um, – and, you know, comparing it to what you're doing. And, you know, you, you, you have to remember that what you see of someone's life, um, you know, online as it's presented online is not always the reality of that life on a day-to-day basis. And, um, you know, you, people, if you're like me, and I know that you're the same, you know, I, I obviously do share um, some of my life online, but I, I don't share all of it. And I think yeah. it's really important not to compare yourself with what you're looking at um, with someone else's um, life online, because it's mm. we're all we're all working hard, and we're all um, our day to day reality is not 
you know, not necessarily what you perceive our day-to-day reality to be. And the life of a published author is is different, admittedly, to when you are working um, towards publication, but it mm. is, in fact, in some ways busier than mm. than it is when you have a lot of time um, to write your first book. And, and I think you don't actually recognise just the how much time you do have to write your first book when you're writing it um, yes. because once you have a book out there, um, the pressure is on you not only to promote that book but to write the next book and then also to do the other jobs that you do that also keep, um, you know, keep the mortgage paid and keep the children in school. So I think it's um, – and fed. I do like to feed them occasionally. Yes, um, yes. You know, so I, it's, I, I think comparison is – is a thief of, you know, oxygen and creativity. So Absolutely. Um, my suggestion would be to focus, you know, stay in your own lane, focus on what yes. you're doing, look ahead to your dreams and what you want to be doing and looking sideways at what other people are doing, it, all it does is slow you down and, um, and you know, even stall you in some ways. So I can't remember where we got, how we even got started on that. Wow, that was amazing. I think we need to just put that to music. (laughs) (laughs) That was just, that was fantastic. I don't know where that came from. I don't know where that came from either. All I said was, how are you? Yeah, I know. So sorry. Gosh, you've really got the full. No, but I really, really love the sentiment and I absolutely agree 100%. And without a doubt, I agree that comparing yourself to other people, particularly what you see of their lives online is simply a waste of time in instead try and get inspiration from them and don't try, don't look at it and think oh but they can do it because or they can or I can't do it because just think of all the ways that you can do it and of course you know I, I truly stand by that statement that I think Alison is one of the busiest people I know and has such a diverse range of interests and well diverse range of um career opportunities as well and she's become a master over the last decade or so in in fitting everything in and doing everything so professionally in fact I was only commenting this is the truth too to my partner just a couple of days ago no matter what Alison agrees to do it always comes back you know really professionally done to 100 percent and so you know, I think that that is not only a matter of professional integrity, but also because you have such a busy life, you have incredible an incredible approach to um, just getting things done, not making yes. excuses. Yes. And that's why I knew that Alison was the most perfect person to design the course How to Make Time to Write because she absolutely makes time to write. She doesn't hope for time to write. She makes the time to write and she has a step-by-step strategy on exactly how to do that. So if you want to find out more about Alison's course, just go to writerscenter.com.au slash time. That's writercenter.com.au slash time. Now let's talk about something else where there's a bunch of awesome people hanging around and that is our new Facebook group. Oh, Yes. Isn't it yes. fun? I'm so excited. It's just been so lovely to see so many of you knocking at the door, saying, hi, here I am, let me in, um, and um, and just to meet you all. And, um, yes. you know, if you haven't joined the Facebook group, then please come along and say hello. It's um, 
it's already proving to be a very lively and interactive sort of a spot yes. for people to talk about their writing and the things that they're thinking and what they're reading. Um, and I, I see it growing into, you know, into a terrific and supportive community. So I, I really hope that you guys um, all come along and join us in there because it's, um, yeah, I think it's going to be a really good spot to be yeah. a good energy it's it's going to have a it's great energy it's got a I great think. energy yeah. absolutely so just yeah. if you're in facebook just search for so you want to be a writer podcast community that's so you want to be a writer podcast community and um and just request to join it'd be great to have you in there and i just love the fact that i've had the opportunity to share my recipe for banoffee pie <laughs> it's all about the banoffee pie and in fact when you when you enter the group you will be greeted by an enormous picture of banoffee pie and offered a slice which of course I'm happy to give my slice to someone else because I think there's only two of us yes, so far you and Jodie Gibson I think so in the no bananas ever group um, subsection of so you want to be a writer group but um if you are not a fan of the banana and you would like to join us, please feel free. Like I will be just handing out the chocolate cake in my section because no, you know, no, 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 no. Because if you don't like banana, you do exactly the same, but you put canned pears. Mm. Yeah, no, See, no, I, no, I, no. Trust me, trust me, trust me. Seriously, no, you don't I, understand. Honestly, Val, seriously, I don't eat dessert unless it's chocolate. As far as I'm concerned, if it's not chocolate, it's not worth getting fat for. So, if you want to be with me in in team chocolate, then you know that's fine. If you want to be in team banoffee slash pear, then feel free. <laughs> You're missing it. I won't be offended. I, I get it. I do understand that there are people out there who have much wider dessert tastes than I do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's move on to the world of writing and publishing, shall we? Yes. We have a link from the Writing Cooperative. I thought that this was a good one called How to Use Subplots to Bring Your Whole Story Together. And I thought that was useful because I was reading a manuscript the other day and I got to, you know, maybe – about two-thirds or somewhere in the second half, and there was this entire subplot, and I thought, oh, okay, this is a new subplot. I wonder what this is about. And then I read to the end, and this sub, as it turned out, as I later discovered by the time I got to the end, that subplot had absolutely nothing to do with anything. Like the entire subplot could have been taken out of that manuscript and the main story would not have been affected at all. It was just sort of like, stuck in there in the middle of nowhere and it really had no relation to anything in a, around it. Of course, some of the characters were involved in it, but not much character development occurred because of this subplot. So one of the things that this particular link is saying is that there are different types of subplots. Um, and one is the mirror subplot, which is a, a mirror subplot happens when you create a secondary conflict that mirrors the main conflict, but usually doesn't actually match it. So mm. this is, um, and we'll put the link in the show notes as well, which you can find find at soyouwantobeawriter.com.au from the writing cooperative this link is from. And also there's the contrast subplot where you show the opposite progress or growth from the main plot. And then there are complications, which is something we're quite familiar with, because um, subplots that complicate things for your main character and is a great, they're great ways to keep your reader turning the pages. But this link is also saying that you should make sure that um, 
they that they all your subplots are connected in some way and that they um always serve to move your story forward so that you don't have a situation like I experienced when I read that manuscript lately where it this subplot just comes out of nowhere because I, I still don't know why I haven't asked the author where this <laughs> came from or why <laughs> but you know they probably have some reason when you've written your subplots, Al, do you, have you ever found a situation where you get to the end of your first draft and you go, this really doesn't need to be? <laughs> or do you, or when you're creating your subplots, are you consciously creating them or are you just letting them evolve? Wow. Do you know what? I wish I'd known that you were going to ask me this question because I, I would have actually gone away and thought about, <laughs> thought about it a bit. Um, subplots are a funny, funny thing because I, I'm just thinking about my about my various books. And I don't know that I have ever consciously thought, aha, I need a subplot here and it must mirror the main events. You know, I I don't think I've ever actually thought about that. Um, I think what happens is that, uh, you know, if you're writing uh, fiction of of any kind of length, you generally need a subplot to just to kind of support the main plot in the sense that you know, otherwise you're stretching one story over an extremely long period of time. So what a subplot does is it allows you um, it allows you to distract from the main storyline occasionally. It allows you to support the main storyline occasionally. Um, in the case of of um, the Adaban cipher, um, there's a very strong there are several subplots, but there's one in particular. There's a very, very strong story that could have almost been another book or, you know, a completely separate, um, you know, book all on its own in some ways. Mm. Um, but it's essential as part of the overarching story sort of, you know, to keep the main uh, the main plot bubbling along as well. So um, I don't think I actually actively thought I need a really strong subplot here. Mm. But as I was writing the first book, uh, there just appeared this at this point in the story where this character um, arrived, and I thought, yes, you're important. And he his story becomes the main subplot of the of the actual two book series. So it's um, yeah, I, I'm so I'm such a bad person to ask this stuff of because so much of what I do with my writing is just that instinctive. Um, it's it's all done by instinct and feel and it's I go back in the edit and it's not till I actually go back in the edit that I realize what I've done and that's when I start to think about does it need to be you know toned back does it need to be strengthened is this particular character worthy of the subplot that I have actually given that particular character um Mm. and I look at that sort of stuff in the edit and often with um particularly the second book of the Adaban Cipher which I'm doing the copy edit for at the moment um my publisher Suzanne at Achette and I actually went through. It, it actually was a two. It was a, it was a two structural edit job that one because I handed it in at first draft so that she could see where the whole story was going, and there was it required a structural edit at that point. Um, while I was actually because I I knew I mean you know it was a first draft it was going to need some work, um, and then even though even once I'd done that big structural edit on it we we looked at it again and went no this this subplot requires a bit more oomph again. So Mm. I went back and did it again. But what that's actually meant is the copy edit I'm doing at the moment is an absolute breeze. Like I have never had an easier Um. copy edit in my life. It's all about moving a comma and, you know, 
yep. there's very few queries that require author queries that require me to rewrite sections or think about th- you know things too much. All the work was done in that sort of structural edit phase. But yeah, you, you do need to ask those questions. Like it's um, it's really important, and particularly I think that's where a second pair of eyes, you know. You know, I would generally say at second, like not first draft stage, but second draft stage can be so important because that's where sometimes you don't even realize you've created a subplot until someone mm. else goes, oh, what are, what are you doing with this? You know, it, you either you either need to bring that out more or you need to get rid of it, you know. So, mm. um, yeah, it's uh, it, it can be an instinctive thing. Um, it can be something that you actually sit down and think I'm going to mirror the entire thing. But if you are writing a, a work of fiction of any you know length at all you you are going to need at least one subplot just to just to yes. give you something to write about I think <laughs> <laughs> if nothing else gives you something to so write about <laughs> when you ha- did the first structural edit and you said it was you know quite a big structural edit how big is big like how can you describe the extent to which you structurally edit something Oh, it's hard to say. Like, I mean, as I said, it was a first draft. So we were working mm. off a first draft. Um, so again, you know, with me, it was the usual usual saga of the fact that I'd started the story 3,000 words before I should have. Yeah, um, yeah. So it was a case of lopping that off. I, I do write my way into stories and I think it's, it's I, I, I've, I've come to, I've just come to appreciate that as part of what I do. Um, mm. it's, a, it's a matter of me, you know, getting a whole lot of stuff out of my head backstory wise. And then I usually find that the, the starting point of the story reveals itself quite obviously. And then half of what I've done in that first 3,000 words needs to be interspersed into the story, you know, a bit further on and the rest just disappears. And that's okay. I'm, I'm, that's my process and I'm, I'm okay with that. So we lopped off the start um, mm. and there was, I'm just trying to think about the main gist of it. The main gist was strengthening the subplot. The main gist was bringing the, the subplot together. Um, uh, to, it was really towards the, the climax of the book. Um, it really needed to be strengthened there. So there was, some re, there was a fair bit of rewriting to do in that. And then the other thing was, um, and this is a really interesting thing too as the writer because you know your story so well as you're writing, you know what you're yeah. doing, you know, you're sort of all coming along. And often it takes someone else to go back and read over it. And, you know, Suzanne said to me at one point, you know, this, this book this, you know, series is about the Adaban cipher and I have lost track of the book. Where is the book? And you're right. kind of like, well, really, it's with blah, blah, you know. But, As but in no, the, the book that has the Adaban. The book. That, the book. That, with, the the, actual, with a message in it. Yeah. The coded manuscript. We yes, had that's lost, right, the coded we manuscript. We had lost uh, sight of where it was. So, you know, yes. it's a matter of going in and just like, you, and it doesn't take much you think, oh no, I have to rewrite. But in actual fact, it's a word here, it's a sentence there, yeah, just to make right. sure that the reader never loses track of the mm. most important thing in the story. So, yeah, mm. that's what it means. Mm. But it can require a, a lot of dissecting, pulling things apart, reworking, deleting, a lot of deleting. And for me, also, um, obviously, because we've talked about my the fact that I tend to underwrite things, um, yes. you know, just again, going in and, and strengthening description, strengthening ideas of where they are, strengthening the location of the book, that kind of stuff. Yes, yes. Fantastic. Okay. Well, let's move on to our next link. Now, this isn't news, but it might be news to some people, but I just thought I would remind people of this great device that 
if you are in San Francisco or <laughs> in France. <laughs> San now, Francisco or France. Yeah, San Francisco wish- or France. <laughs> I know I wish to. Do you know how many of my friends are in Europe? I'm like, no. I'm not. <laughs> I when just I look at their Instagram yes. feed. <laughs> yes. Um, anyway, if you are in San Francisco, it started off in France and it's moved to San Francisco and I have no doubt that it will spread to other places across the world. And I am, of course, talking about the short story <laughs> Vending Machine. So this is often found uh, at train stations in France or waiting in lines or, or that sort of thing. But uh, this it was invented by publishing startup Short Edition and it's now in 32 locations, mainly in France and recently in San Francisco. And you can push one of three buttons and you can choose the length of your story because that will depend on, you know, how much time you want to kill, right? So you might have um, uh, one, three or five minutes and then it will automatically print out a surprise short story with and, – and they have a variety of genres – that are represented, uh, including horror or fairy tales or humour or whatever. It's just all a little bit of a lucky dip. But it is also um, the authors who are represented. So basically what happens is that there's a database full of user-submitted shorts. But then you don't just get any of those because, you know, there could be inequality, right? They're, They're voted up by the users on on mm-hmm. via an app so only the highest voted uh stories are the ones that are printed from from the dispensers and i just think it's so cute <laughs> is it something I, you would do though let me ask you that I would is that totally so- yeah oh you mean would as you? in would i <clears throat> would i wait would i press the button would yeah. i would i get the short story sure of course i would if i was on a train like not if I was driving, but if I was on my way somewhere. <laughs> oh, Val, you are a woman of many talents, but reading and driving at the same time is never a good option. No. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. If I was going to go on a train or, or something like that, I would totally um, – wouldn't you? Well – no, I, but no. Well, no, because I catch trains all the like. This is the difference between us. I am well equipped for a train, like at any time, at any given yeah. moment, I am ready for a train. I have a, you know, I have my, um, my phone with me with podcasts and whatever on it. I have a book. Generally speaking, if I'm getting on a train, I have a book with me. Like I take a book. I'm that kind of kid. I take a book. But maybe I've that's spent my you whole have life long take- train rides. I've spent no, but even when I was a like, because you know, I've only been taking long train rides. Well, it is about eight years now, I guess. But um, I was a, I was just, I've always been a commuter my whole entire life. I lived in Sydney, and I was on a bus or on a train, and I prefer a train because I don't like to read on buses. But I uh, yeah, carry I a book with me at all times when yeah, I'm, I, you know, when I, I know that I'm going to be somewhere near public transport, I carry a book. Yes, but it's mm. the pro- the thing that I find exciting about it is the process of discovery. I love discovering new writers, new artists, new whatever, you know, new things. And it's the fact that something brand new, very likely brand new to me, will pop out of this dispenser that I find exciting. Hopefully it's actually a well-written piece as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if it is, then I've discovered this new writer I, I, yeah, why wouldn't you? 
It's like fun. Wouldn't you do it just for the novelty value? Oh, I might do it once just for fun, like just to see what popped out. Like I just, I don't know, I guess, you know, you're just, look at you with your <laughs> embracing of new art forms at all times. Um, I think I'm just such a, I'm so boring. I just want, I want to read something I know is going to be good. So I'm going to read the book that I'm reading. Oh, well, it's so true. Dull. But- no, 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 no. It's but the, the, it's likely to be good because these are upvoted. Remember, so it's not just random stories. Okay. There is some level of well, not quite curation, but you know, uh, voting. So at least mm-hmm. there's that. Mm-hmm. All, right, All right. So Al's not going to read your short story if you put it. in No, the no. I, I look as we just discussed. <laughs> I'll do it once for the novelty value. Um, but I, chances are that I've got a book under my arm that I can't wait to get back into. So, you know, oh, it's tough. <laughs> All right, let's move on to uh, something else. This isn't a link but something that I thought of during the week when I was reading someone's story. And we've all heard about the – we've all heard the phrase burying the lead. Uh, and I wanted to talk about that because I think it's quite a rookie mistake for some people who are writing articles. So this is more for people who are writing freelance articles, not so much writing fiction. And when we refer to burying the lead, we are referring to lead spelled L-E-D-E, not L-E-A-D, even though you might, even though that might seem like it makes sense too. But the lead, L-E-D-E, refers to the main point of the story that's usually in the opening sentence or opening paragraph of a news story and uh, or a news-related article. And the term burying the lead uh, comes about when the journalist or writer writes the story but bur- literally buries the lead. It's not in the first paragraph. Sometimes it's not uh, – it, they don't get to the exciting part of the story till halfway through or, you know, till five paragraphs in and the lead is buried. And that is a rookie mistake that I find uh, some new writers make because I was reading a piece the other day where you could tell what the lead was because the – you know, the intro or stand first told you essentially what the story was about. But I got, I pretty much counted the paragraphs because that's the sort of thing I'd do. Um, 65% in before it was even mentioned for the first time. The the main wow. part of the story. Ridiculous. I don't even know. I don't know how this got published. I don't know how the editor, who <clears> you and <throat> I both know, um, would, would let it go through. Uh, so... And and it's just it's it's frustrating for the reader because the reader basically feels lost for the first sixty five percent, or is wondering what's the point for the first sixty five percent. So if you are writing your you know articles, you might think, oh, I don't do that. But if you are new to the craft, then I encourage you to actually count count how many paragraphs in it is before you actually get to the main point. It's surprising how late in the piece some new writers get to the lead. So ideally it should probably be, I mean, depending on the length of your story, of course, but somewhere in your first three paragraphs, um, maybe first five if you're writing a really long, long story. Uh, but do that as a technique. Count how many paragraphs in until you actually get to your lead and hopefully um, you're not getting into a situation where you're burying your lead as well. Hmm. Do you ever find that when you're reading stories or or do you not really take notice? <laughs> oh, no, I obviously take notice. But the, what I do, I wouldn't get 65% of the way into it, Val. I probably would have You'd like, lose the page. It, yeah. 
Yeah, yes, I would yes, turn the page. Yes. Um, but, yeah, I, I do see it a bit, um, obviously, you know, teaching the uh, magazine and newspaper writing feature course that I do. It's something I do point out to students on a regular basis because I think it's um, – it, it's it, but it is a practice thing. It's something that you learn. It's um, yes. it's as important – It's a, it's about choosing – the right angle for your story and making sure that that is upfront. Like it's, you know, making sure that the, that the point that you're making is very, very clear right from the first paragraph. Um, and not, I, and I remember doing it even, you know, as a, as, as a young journalist, I remember yes. writing stories and I was trying to get, because I thought I was, I don't know what I was doing. I was trying to get, particularly with case studies, it was mm. about trying to get, you know, the person's entire life story into 500 mm. words. But in actual fact, what I needed to do was thinking about the story I was trying to write and mm. choosing the angle of their story, the most important part of their story that would actually suit my article's requirements. And I think that that's um, something that you learn along the way. You know, it's like if your story is about, uh, you know, why a person got left at the altar, you know, on their wedding day, you probably don't actually need to know the entire details of every aspect of their romance. You just need <laughs> to know the important bit. Why did they get yes. left there? You yes. know, why is the wedding yes. dress still hanging in their cupboard? That's the key to the story. Mm. Um, and that's also will help with word counts because that was the other problem I used to have, of course, was, you know, I'd get 1,500 words to write a story about four women who still had their wedding dresses hanging in their wardrobes. Um, mm. And, you know, I was trying to write a thousand words on each of them and mm. and then wondering, you know, why, why I was struggling so much. But it was because I wasn't focused on the angle of the story. And I think if you focus very hard on the angle um, as opposed to, you know, trying to encapsulate every single thing you know about that person, um, yes. then that does help a great deal with keeping your lead to the forefront. Yeah, absolutely. Was that in is just was that an example or did you that actually was write a story? I wrote yeah. that okay. story. No, I wrote did that you, story. Did you you wrote that story? So, yeah. um how it was did called you find wedding dress never worn? <laughs> how did you find four women who were left at the altar? Oh, it was one of those and it was back in the day. Do you know what I mean? Mm. We're talking about pre-internet yeah. here. So, yeah, yeah. It wasn't easy. Um I, I came up with some. I did come up with some cracking case studies in the end, but it took. It did take me a little while, um, in the sense that I. It was. Does anyone know anyone? It was one of those. Yeah. So I rang every single person I had ever met in my life to ask them yeah. about whether they had ever met anyone, um, you know, who hadn't quite made it to the altar. Um, yeah. and so, yeah, like it was, it was really networking and it was all, you know, everyone, it was for Cleo, that story, unsurprisingly. Yes, yes. Um, yes. and it was, it was a case of every single person on staff asking everyone that they'd ever met. Um, so of course, you know, clearly we were all basically, uh, women in our twenties. So, you know, yeah. Uh, we knew a lot of women in our twenties, <laughs> in their twenties between us, um, yeah. and so it was really a case of that. But yeah, it was a cracker. It was a really interesting story too, because yeah, then of course yeah. you have to interview these people, and you're yeah. asking them about you know an incredibly difficult time in their lives, and that's yes. all you really want to talk about is that day, that one yeah. incredibly difficult day in their lives. But of course, to get to that, you've got to have the whole. And this is where yeah. it can be easy to go wrong because mm. you have this entire conversation with them about you know their their relationship gone wrong um and then you feel like you've got to you know 
as a responsible journalist, you also know what this story is actually going to look like in print. So you need mm. to look after your um, interview subjects as well. So it's a very mm. – they're not easy stories to write, you know, if you're no. thinking – if you're thinking of coming up with a story like that, the only one that was more difficult, I wrote two, I did two stories where I had to get 10 people, 10 men and 10 women to take their clothes off and appear oh, naked, yeah. Leo, and discuss their bodies, you know, their body image. Um, and of course the men were so easy. They were yeah. easy to find. They were easy to photograph. They were easy to, the whole thing. And they were all just like, yeah, where do you want me? I'll just get my kid off. Here I am. Um, and then, I had to, then I had to find, you know, 10, 10 women who would do the same thing. And that was not easy because you're looking for different body types. Of course, for a story like that, you know, like you're looking for variety and, yes. and it's like, I'd come, I'd come to work and I'd be like, I've got one. And I'd, you know, we'd discuss it. And then the editors would say, oh no, those two are too similar. You know, you need to come up oh. with someone different. Oh. So you end up finding about 25, you know, potential case studies to actually end up with 10. Mm. Oh, my oh gosh. I'm talking Those a lot today. Those were the days. Those, Those were the were days. days. All Those right. <laughs> Let's yeah. move on to our giveaway this week. Now, we have three copies to give away of How to Stop Time by Matt Haig. Uh, and here's the description. From Shakespeare's England to Jazz Age Paris to surfing in Byron Bay, a wild, bittersweet, time-travelling story about love, loss and living in the moment. Matt Haig is best-selling British novelist and journalist. He has written fiction and non-fiction for both children and adults. Now, if you would like your chance to win a copy of How to Stop Time by Matt Haig, then go to writercentre.com.au slash win. Entries close on the 21st of August. So get in to writercentre.com.au slash win and enter there for your chance to win this awesome book. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our Stage 2 Creative Writing course, Advanced Fiction Writing Techniques, will help you apply proven methods to your own writing, taking your storytelling to a whole new level. With workshopping and practical exercises focusing on scene development, characters, climax and resolution, it's your perfect next step. Learn online over a few hours each week. You'll even get your own tutor providing personal feedback on your writing. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash advanced. You know what I'm going to say, Al? I think I think I do. I think I do, Val. I think I do know what you're going to say. <laughs> the, are you ready for the word of the week? What are you, like, you going to do if one day I just go? You know what, Val? I'm so not ready for that. I don't. I just. I don't oh. know if I can cope with the word of the week today. What are you going to do then? It's oh. okay. Today is not that day. Oh. I'm ready, Val. I better think of a good response to that. Okay. <laughs> so, the word of the week this week is magisterial or magisterial, Ooh. but it's M-A-G-I-S-T-E-R-I-A-L, magisterial. So the thing is, I, I emphasize the M-A-G-I-S because you might think that this word sounds like it comes from majesty, Ooh. but it doesn't. Uh, it actually comes from the word that gives us magistrate, 
which oh. incidentally used to mean school teacher. So magisterial means when something is done in the manner of a domineering school teacher. So you might say oh. the nanny had a magisterial approach to discipline. So there you go, magisterial. There you go. I didn't know about the teacher connection. That's very interesting, No, I know. Yes, there you go. So if you're going to use the word of the week in one of your blog posts, make sure you ping us so that we can see it out there in the wild in action. Mm. All right. Let's move on to our writer in residence, huh? Oh, let's. Let's. Now, this is this is a good one. We've, we're talking to Catherine Jinks. Now, Catherine Jinks is more well-known to us usually as a fiction writer, often, of, well, for all age groups, but mainly for children's books. She's won many awards, including the Children's Book Council of Australia, Book of the Year Award four times, um, the Victorian Premier's Literary Award, so many awards. Um, in 2000, she received the Prime Minister's Medal for her contribution to Australia in children's literature. So for many years, Catherine Jinks has been synonymous with children's literature. But this book called Charlatan is not a children's book. It's a nonfiction book for adults. And um, it says, Charlatan, the dishonest life and dishonoured loves of Thomas Guthrie Carr, stage mesmerist. So basically, it's um, it's like a biography. Uh, it, it's a, it's a peek into history about a guy called Thomas Guthrie Carr who did all manner of um, bizarre and interesting things. And uh, according to the back of the book, who lied, fought, and sleezed his way around Australia and New Zealand. <laughs> uh, but let's talk to Catherine and hear what she has to say about it. So thanks so much for joining us today, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Now, this book, Charlatan, and uh, the subtitle is The Dishonest Life and Dishonored Dishonored Loves of Thomas Guthrie Carr, Stage Mesmerist, (laughs) is obviously about Thomas Guthrie Carr, but if there are some people who haven't read the book yet, can you tell us a little bit about what's in the book? Okay. The book is structured around a court case or or a committal hearing that took place in Sydney in 1868 um, in which uh, a woman called Eliza Gray accused a man, Thomas Guthrie Carr, who was a stage mesmerist, of mesmerising her against her will and then raping her. Um, And I use this particular case to um, construct a kind of study of his life as much as I could um, find out about it because he was quite a notorious and interesting fellow uh, who came to Australia in 1865 and was quite a celebrity in his way. He was a stage mesmerist and phrenologist and he went around performing everywhere and he was just a piece of work, just the most massive piece of work you could possibly imagine and he was always in court and he was always doing the wrong thing and I just thought he was rather a hilarious character. Um, and I was also intrigued as to whether he really did what he was accused of doing. Mm. And how did you discover him in the first place? <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a kind of odd thing because the thing is he hasn't been written about almost at all. He's been mentioned in a couple of books back in the eighties, very briefly. Uh, I think there was one line mentioning him in a more recent book about mesmerism, but. Um, 
he's just been forgotten. And the reason I found him was because I was looking at something else for another book I wrote, which was a children's book on, it was a novel about a monster catcher in Victorian England. And for, for various reasons, I was looking at baby farming, um, which was a, mm. uh, something that happened back in the 19th century where a lot of women who had illegitimate children or women who were domestic servants who couldn't look after them, the children, you know, because they were living, they would send their kids to look, be looked after by uh, some woman, usually a woman, sometimes a couple, and they used to have large numbers of children, these sorts of people, uh, looking after them. And, you know, they were paid to look after them, but they weren't paid very well. And if they were paid a lump sum, which was often the case, that kids didn't really stand a chance. They generally mm. perished. So I was looking at this one case in Wallara in Sydney where a baby farmer had lost something like, I think it was 12 children in 11 months, and she was charged with murdering three of them but never convicted. And one of the kids' names was Elizabeth Cohen. And I was just looking at her up, and I noticed that the she'd been given to this baby farmer by a guy called Benjamin Cohen, who was her grandfather, so she was obviously illegitimate. And the night before the inquest into her death, he committed suicide. And I was thinking, wow, this is weird. So I was kind of looking into it and I was wondering, who's Benjamin Cohen? I was just following my nose, you know, out of interest. Mm. Who's Benjamin Cohen? Well, his brother, Henry Cohen, and he owned a place called Cohen Brothers Monster Closing Hall in George Street. Mm. And Henry Cohen, I was looking at Henry Cohen, and he turned up as a witness at this trial of Thomas Guthrie Carr because Eliza Gray had been one of his employees, and that's how I stumbled on it in a really weird, roundabout way. But when I started reading about the trial, I thought, this is really interesting, and I just kept on going from there. Wow. I think that's fascinating, <laughs> completely roundabout way. And as you were saying, yeah. you were following your nose, but when you were following your nose, where were you following your nose? Was this the internet? Was this like a state library? Where were you actually oh, well, finding yeah. all these things? Interesting because this was basically, this was thanks to Trove. Trove is my God. Trove (laughs) and Papers Past, which is the New Zealand equivalent. Um, I, because Thomas Guthrie Carr, he had one daughter and his daughter never had any children. Uh, so, and his, I did speak to his sis, his wife's sister's descendants, a couple of them, and they knew very little about him. So basically none of his letters, his diaries, anything like that, you know, has survived. So almost everything I got was from the newspapers. And the reason I managed to get him as much as I did is because he was never out of the newspapers. Um, and he was a huge and terrific self-promoter. And so every single thing he did, he put in the newspapers. He would have been a great Facebooker. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, no, seriously, he just, every literally, he just couldn't turn around. If he did a, an operation, he would be in the newspapers. If he, if he helped collect money somebody, it would be in the newspapers. If he paid for someone's funeral, it would be in the newspapers because he was constantly, you know, telling everybody was what he was doing. Um, so thanks to Trove, I pretty much was able to pick up, um, picked up an enormous amount of stuff thanks to Trove. Wow. So that was pretty so, much what I did, yeah. I, did, I mean, I did a few. There was one phrenological chart he'd done, which yes. uh, I managed to get from New Zealand, and there was, you know, the odd bit of record. There was records at the, in the Police Gazette because he was arrested and so forth, but very little else except newspaper. Wow. So let me understand this. You're... 
basically at home in your study and you're Mm. researching all of this stuff on Trove via the internet and just coming upon uh, following your nose, finding an article, going to the next article and so on. Is that right? Yeah, that's it. That's, I mean, Trove, I don't know if anybody hasn't used Trove. It's a miracle because Mm. all you have to do is put in search words and every single article in every single newspaper pretty much Mm. ever published in Australia comes Mm. up. And so you can just follow that. You just have to think of different ways of putting those search parameters. Yes. It's an, it's amazing how many different, you know, words you have to use sometimes to try and get material. But eventually, because there was Mr. Carr, there was Mr. Guthrie Carr, there was, you know, Thomas Carr, there was TG Carr, you know, like you could just try all the different ways of doing it. So you follow your nose, you you discover the trial via um, uh, the the baby farming route. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, and you discover the trial and you start reading about Thomas Guthrie Carr and you think, this guy's really interesting. At it was was it a eureka moment? Did you think I this the, I'm going to write a book about this straight away, or how did that? I it, think that it, no, I think it, it probably took a, a little bit longer. It probably took. I thought, wow, amazing trial, amazing yeah. trial. Who was this guy? And then I started to look up other things he was, do- and generally what would pop up would be reviews of his shows. And quite frankly, his shows were something else. I mean, <laughs> they were. Incredibly rambunctious. You had people having, they have people pretend, like pretending to be mesmerised and 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 chasing each other around the, the sort of the, the auditorium and and being pricked with pins and you know having their teeth pulled and you know lots of boxing matches and people. I mean, you know, there's just no end to this weird stuff that was mm. going on. So I just thought, wow. <laughs> and at that point, I thought. This is worth looking into, um, and I think I might have decided right. This guy, I think I've got to can get a book out of him. Mm. When I uh, one thing I did find on the internet, which wasn't on Trove, but it was on the blooming internet. It's amazing what's on the internet. <laughs> was a published transcription. So basically, a copy of a pamphlet which. Guthrie Carr published when he was still in England because he came from England. He was mm. uh, a native of Newcastle on Tyne. He published one of the talks he gave in Newcastle on Tyne uh, as a pamphlet, and it was quite a lengthy pamphlet. And it was attacking a pair of spirit mediums called the Davenport Brothers, who mm. had come over to England from America, and they were extremely interesting. And he went to one of their shows and thought it was a dreadful fraud and he talked about it and I just it was so lavish and his writing style was so interesting and I just thought you know what I reckon I I think there's a a story in this guy and so I did I pursued him through Australia and I pursued him through New Zealand and it just and also the whole issue I thought well even if there isn't quite enough on him the whole issue of mesmerism Mm. As a as a kind of a, a performance and phrenology as a performance, I thought there's enough here that I think we can make something quite interesting out of this. 
So can you give me some timelines? Like give me an idea of at this point you were exploring baby farming and then you started researching preliminary for a certain period. Then you think that I'm going to write a book. Then how long did you spend researching and how long did you spend writing? Just kind of take me through kind of a timeline. Yeah, it didn't actually, thanks to the wonders of internet and trove, it didn't take me nearly as long as you might think. It actually... I did have to schlep on down to the old Mitchell Library. <laughs> um, I got my, I'd already got my, I think it's called like a platinum card or something like you get a fancy mm-hmm. pants. There's two grades of um, library card at the Mitchell mm-hmm. and, well, you know, the state library. And one yes. of them is kind of also ran. And the other one, if you, you have to provide identification and then you get like, you can get into the rare books and all that. So mm-hmm. I got into the rare books, but that card also gives you access to, some really great international newspaper databases. Um, so there was that too. But I did go down to the Mitchell to look at the Police Gazette, which wasn't on the internet. And I did try digging around in a few um, letters and so forth, um, Henry Parks stuff and everything, just because Henry Parks did encounter um, Guthrie Carr at one point, you know, so I did do a little bit of dabbling. So I spent a few days there, but not many. It was mostly on the internet. So that mm. was, that makes it much faster. And mm. uh, I reckon, and of course, to be honest, I didn't do all, because this is my first, okay, this is my first nonfiction book ever. Mm. I've done historical fiction before, but not nonfiction. So I did a lot of research, started the book, and then found occasionally I'd have to duck out and do some more research um, because I, I I think since then I've written another nonfiction and I I was more familiar with what I had to do so I think I got most of the research done first but yeah. um, this time I was still a little unsure of the process and also I had to wait on this New Zealand I, I got this one phrenological chart from an Auckland library museum and um they that took a while to get they had to copy it and send it and they've obviously only got one and a half people doing everything you know because poor underfunded things as usual so um it took a while to get it was a fair few weeks before that arrived so various things i had to kind of follow up during the writing process but generally speaking i would say the research i don't think i took more than about 6 weeks to do all wow. that wow Wow. Mm, I, it was just okay. because I, when I, once I got my, the real bit between my teeth, mm. before I started writing, it was probably about six weeks. And then there was probably another two to three weeks of research in between all of that um, yeah. writing. Um, I did also speak to the descendants, um, Bev Gavine and Maureen Robertson, and they were really helpful, particularly so about his the- wife's family. In the main six-week chunk where you were doing the research, was it like full on that's all you did, you were obsessed? Because I Yeah, it, it gets a bit like that because mm. there's not – yeah, in fact, it's far more – it makes me think of being, I don't know, maybe a, a, vid, a computer game player or something because you're just mm. sitting there following, like particularly with Trove, mm. looking at – or looking at those endless stream of um, articles, you know? Yes. And then having to print them out. 
because I that's what I did. I just printed enormous amounts of articles out and oh. stuck them in folders under the different years and all of that sort of stuff. Um, I was probably doing it in a very clumsy and primitive way compared with a lot of academics. <laughs> I don't know, but I it was just all I could, the only way I knew how. So I just kept on printing out these articles sure. and marking them up and printing up some more and marking them up. So, yeah, that took a while. And so you have written countless <laughs> children's books. <laughs> so was this, had you at some point decided, I'm going to try something different, I'm going to do a nonfiction book for adults now, or was this just accidental, a happy accident? This was, I think, okay, I've done adult fiction before, adult mm. historical fiction before, and I think initially at the first moment I was thinking, oh, this might make a novel, you know, um, uh-huh. because that wouldn't have been out of the question. It's happened before. Yes. Yes. But the minute things started to get as weird as they did, because quite frankly, it's bizarre, a lot of this stuff, yeah. utterly bizarre. I think when I, when I hit the, um, you know, the testimonial, Dr. Carr removed my finger on stage today and I had felt absolutely no pain. I thought, this is way too good for a novel. <laughs> this would be yes. a waste if I used it on a novel. Uh, this is just, this is just stranger than fiction. I've got to do a nonfiction for this. This is just not, you know, this is just, I just, there's so much here that people would just think, oh, whatever, if it was a novel. But if it's real, yes. <laughs> you know. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think I probably initially thought, Meh, maybe a novel, but then I very quickly realised that if I was going to do it, I should try and do it nonfiction. And frankly, it's getting to the point where I've done a hell of a lot of novels. And yes, I did. And I've just been, like last year, I did had a bit of a dabble into script writing and mm-hmm. it just keeps things fresh to change. Yes. You know, I, I just like to do something a bit different. And this was, this was fun. I mean. Yeah, it sounds, yeah. I mean, he's ha, ha, like, because it is so bizarre, right? All the stuff he's done. Why do you not think, why do you think he was not more well-known? Why do you think well, there was not more stuff written about him by, well, you know, I think, other people? Yeah. I mean, in a way, okay, he was a big, a big fish in a very ephemeral pond, which is, the, which is popular entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, it was a bit of an eye-opener, this whole idea – what I discovered about popular entertainment then was not quite what I expected. Um, it was so, um, I mean, for the stitched up old Victorian era, it was so rackety and noisy and rambunctious and the, and the fluidity of the social sort of set up there, all these people from different classes sort of all bogging in together to watch this guy. It, you know, it was, it was, it was so um, interesting, but, not something I knew about. I know, I know a bit about Australian history, but this was not expected. So that's been kind of a bit forgotten too, all these weird people coming out to do all these interesting, odd kinds of popular entertainment. I mean, a lot of the old actors and and all that, they've been forgotten too. It, it seems like because they were, they were, they weren't solid, important political yeah, right. socially significant, all of that sort of stuff. Mm. Apart from the the bush rangers, <laughs> you know, mm. um, you know, it, 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 they might have just gone a bit by the wayside because they didn't. Because let's face it, to be honest, I had to admit to everybody, this is not like when I started writing this. 
I'm like, well, this isn't going to change the face of Australian history because the guy <laughs> contributed nothing. I mean, he was, except for a lot of enjoyment, you know, mm. but mm. he wasn't a good person. He was, he was a real piece of work and he just sleezed and fought and like he wasn't nice even. So um, I suppose that's partly why. I mean, you know, that he, he wasn't, he didn't, he didn't contribute to this, this nascent nation, you know, much. But actually when I was, when I was researching, what I found was it did actually give me an interesting insight into the sort of social setup, like what I was saying mm. about the, you know, the, the, the racketiness and the, and the, I mean, even things like the fact that so many dirt poor working class people like Eliza Gray, who was a seamstress mm. with seven kids, you know, mm. they, they went to court all the time, constantly. Mm. I was so surprised. You know, I thought that was a middle class thing. You know, you go to court because it's so expensive, I would have thought. But mm. obviously it was a common thing, which, you know, who would who knew? I didn't. So, <laughs> um, I mean, maybe there, I'm sure there are academics out there who do know, but I just didn't. And it's not a sort of commonly known thing. It's just not what you expect somehow. And just the general kind of, um, I don't know, this, as I say, the so-called stitched up Victorian era, but my word, those people. <laughs> so you you spent about six weeks in the core research plus another two or three weeks doing some additional research. Uh, can you just – I know it was a little bit interspersed with the writing because it's the first time you've written this nonfiction kind of thing, but can you give us an estimate on the amount of time you spent on the writing the first draft? That was probably about. I'm 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 very ashamed of the fact that I I'm, my memory is shocking on this stuff, but I I suspect I took about between two and three months, I suppose. Right. Probably yeah. about that. And yeah. that was like full time, where that was your oh yeah full, full time. focus, or yeah. were you writing another children's book in the meantime? No, no, no. I tend to focus. On one book at a time, if I can. Okay. That's and why editing that... is so annoying. Yeah. Yes. Because I'm, and you know, I'm did... focusing on one thing and it comes in and you have to, uh, you have to pull your brain yes, out of that. Yes, do that as well. How did it compare with the gestation period of writing a children's book with the novels that you've written? I think um, that's an interesting question. Why? Wow, that's an interesting question. I think actually... The prep time's probably a little longer, but sometimes when you're plotting, like with me when I'm plotting mm. and I get to a tricky bit and it can take me a few days before I'll suddenly go, aha, click, click, you know, that this idea and this idea, oh, thank, okay, got that, now we have to move on. So that can take quite a while to do that. Mm -hmm. Um and I can do when I'm plotting. I I, I tend to fo I can actually go for days and days, just literally listening to a lot of music and focusing on the story, turning yeah. around in my head, turning around in my head, turning around in my head. So it's probably comparable to researching. Yes, research yes. is so much more fun in some ways. <laughs> and the thing is, what I found was it was kind of people saying, "Well, how is it compared with a novel?" And in in a weird sort of way, novels are more work. Because what I like about this was the story was there and all I had to do was mm. put it together the right way. 
Yes. Um, so on that point, then, when you were putting it, you, you you did a whole bunch of research. You put your 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 printouts in the different folders. Um, then obviously you do need to pull it together in a way that is has a strong narrative. How did you decide how you were going to tell the story? How did you yeah, decide? Yeah, well, see, that was that was order? really interesting. And I know, and it's interesting because I've done one since then. Again, as I was saying, mm. which was far more linear. Uh, it was a cla- it was more of a classic go to woe. This one, because I didn't know much about his early life, because Carr is such a common name, mm. especially in Newcastle on Tyne, and it's just really hard. To, and he wasn't making much of a stir mm. back then mm. the way he was mm-hmm. in, in Australia. So I thought, well, the really interesting thing here is this court case. Court cases are always fascinating yeah. anyway, and this one was. I mean, exhaustively described, every little mm. twitch of every finger. I mean, it was just a committal hearing, and it was like five days of it, and huge, enormous counts of it in the newspaper, um, you know, quoting people extensively. So I thought this is probably – and it was the thing that he was probably most notorious for, like – he never shook the, off the this rape. particular court case. Um, mm-hmm. Even when he was old, people would sort of nudge, nudge, wink, wink. In fact, mm-hmm. there was a, a classic, um, this, this hilarious, when he died, somebody in somebody in, in the newspapers printed this funny little poem, and it was really funny. It was, um, alas, he's passed away from I, pale death has drawn his stumps, who used to mesmerize us and manipulate our bumps. Let's hope that when he goes aloft, he'll see the gate ajar and hear the joyful cherub sing, roll in, triumphant car. We'd also like our bumps described. Nay, do not look so red. We cannot compromise you for we're limited to head. So basically, that even when he died, that was like a nudge, 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 wink, wink. Do you remember when he, you know, raped this woman? Yes. So um, I thought that's his, you know, that, that was his, <laughs> that was the thing that he left on posterity was this rape case. So mm. I, I might as well use that as the structure of it and and then examine him in the light of like basically I'm asking myself, did he do this or didn't he? Because yeah. he was never actually convicted of it. So um and to and and in answering that question I have to explore his character within the framework of the court case, and then I can go back and look at all the other thing, dreadful things he's done, um, you know, <laughs> and work out whether he was bad enough to have done this or not and so forth. So that's the way I decided to do it, um, using the and, court case. And now you've said that you've uh, now writing or researching another nonfiction book. So have you got the taste for it now? Is this is this a new direction or will you still well, be – or you did uh, both. I, I've done it. I've finished it, and like I think, it, uh, and then I thought, you know what? I think I'll go back to some fiction now. Um, okay. So, but I do have it. If it does okay, I think. I mean, I'd love to have a sort of. I'd love to have a bit of a a kind of scam artist trilogy because <laughs> this <laughs> other one I've done, yeah, is, is another. Um, is another, oh, my God, piece of work you wouldn't believe. Really? Um, 
Yeah, there's there's so many of them then. I guess it was easier then because there weren't the communication that we yes. have. And did you discover this one through your research of... Uh, yes, I did. I, I stumbled on him while I was researching Carr. They were both yeah, performing yeah. in the same theatre, though slightly... They were slightly different um, era. Yes. Um, this guy didn't arrive in, 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 in Australia until after Carr was dead. And again, was so, this a, a, a trove kind of treasure hunt? Yes, it was from the trove originally, though the one I'm doing now has, has been written about a bit more. But anyway... Um, yeah, it was it was just stumbling on him in trove again. Yes. So I think you know that kind of. Um, I, I mean, I love nonfiction that's really easy to read, like a novel. Yeah. That's sort of real good literary journalist kind of nonfiction. So um, I enjoy reading it so much that more and more as I've got older, I think, and also I think there's more of it now. Yes. Um, so I think that's why I sort of graduated to that because I enjoy reading it so much and, you know, found mm. that actually writing it's quite quite fun too. What was the most um, challenging thing about writing this book and then what was the most enjoyable thing? I think the most enjoyable thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think the most enjoyable thing was just stumbling once again on another perfect example of how he always did the wrong thing. It was always getting caught out because <laughs> my default setting in this, I swear to God, it was, you've got to be kidding me. You, and then I would ring up my agent and said, guess what, guess what, guess what he's done now. Because <laughs> <laughs> you just, you just thought, I, it's hard to explain. When you actually read the book, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you actually, it's, it's like with a detective you know, a detective novel or something, when you're actually uncovering all the clues yeah. and they keep on falling into the perfect pattern yes. of an utter piece of work, you just it's it's almost that he was dreamed up by you because he fits this profile, this character profile so perfectly. He never, ever does the right thing, you know. Love it's it. like some ludicrous baddie that you've dreamed up. It was so <laughs> funny. That's that's what I loved, actually. Um and the most challenging thing yeah, was challenging. probably 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 the footnote no the um the notes <laughs> because I it's been a long time since I did my thesis back in my uni days and I keeping track of because oh, yeah. I wanted to do proper notes man Tro- proper notes that if anybody was researching something else mm. they could go mm. from my notes to the source you know no. so I did you know there's pages of notes in here and yep. boy the editing of that notes was the worst thing the worst thing because then the said, editing of the you know, notes the, yeah the editing of the notes because I put in all this stuff which I thought was there and then she'd go come back and say the editor would say the sub editor would say this, 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 what about this, what page number here? Oh, God. So then I had to go, you know, I'd missed a page number or I'd yeah. missed, yeah. like there was something wrong and I'd have to go back through all these pages of, you know, photocopies. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, oh, that, was, that, would be that was the worst bit. Yeah, yeah, that was that real grinding, detailed, yeah. nitty-gritty, miserable stuff. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> okay. And um, so you've written this other one. Are you now in the depths of writing another fiction novel or, or what's yeah, happening I'm right now? Yeah, I'm just doing that, yeah. That's what I'm doing, just a, a, a YA at the moment. Right. And um, do you, can you tell us what that's going to be about yet or is it still brewing? Oh, no, that's – well, to be honest, I'll, okay, this is, again, a weird little story, but last <laughs> year – well, actually, the year before that, but I was hired by a director to try and turn a very unusual pursuit, one of my kids' books, into a script. So I did that and I mm-hmm. and it was a – learning experience because I'd never done that and boy you know you realize it's different it's a different whole different ball game so then I thought let's train myself let's see if I can write a few by myself just to brush up like trying to sort of hone my skills that I might have picked up so I so one of the things I did was try and create a new like an original script so I, I thought up this idea for an original script and I wrote it but, you know, trying to get anything put up is really hard. But anyway, and then I thought, well, let's not let it go to waste because it was a rather good idea. So let's turn that into a book. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so, you know, again, another interesting, different way of yeah. writing because it just keeps your interest going. So that's what I've been doing. I've been taking my script and turning it back into a book. <laughs> okay. Which is not bad. I gather what. Graham Stimson did for the Rosie Project. For, so. Yes, yes. Yeah. And 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 um, finally, I have to ask, whatever happened to? Because this all started with the research on baby farming. Did the baby <laughs> farming ever turn into anything? Baby. Well, the thing is, I did. I'd already used baby farming in a the sequel to A Very Unusual Pursuit, which is a peculiar plague. I'd already mm-hmm. written about one of my characters who's a nasty baddie was doing being a baby farmer and feeding the babies to, <laughs> feeding the babies to bogles, which are monsters. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, I'd already done that, but I it was for the actual script that I went back to have a look at baby farming. So right. Because I didn't know if I should expand on it or what, you know. Um, it was just mm. something to do with that. So, in fact, I had already used baby farming in something before that. Right. Um, and and what do you find the most rewarding thing about writing? It's changed, honestly. It's changed. Mm-hmm. At the moment, mm-hmm. what I find best about writing is that you can lose yourself in it I mean it's always been a bit like that that's why I'm a writer in the first place because you create another world and you go into it and you don't have to cope with this one um but the way it can keep you occupied utterly what's that they call it flow or something where your entire being is focused on a particular job and you look up and it's three hours later yeah that that's that's an amazing gift to be able to have that because it really it's a really amazing thing so that is what I get out of it also mm-hmm. because I've got a website and before that you know I used to get letters but some of the messages you get mm. literally break your heart like if it's it makes you weep you know they're so just and, and I'm doing this for my own you know, for my own enjoyment, like this is mm. for me. I mean, I know I have an audience that I have to try and cater to, but 
it's almost an abstract audience. And then mm. somebody writes to you and says, because of this book, I decided to become a computer person and, or because of this book, I met my fiance, oh, you know, oh. all of this sort of okay. stuff. It's, it's, you know, because of, because of this book, you know, I never had any friends, but I read this book and now I have friends and, uh, you know, it, wow. like you feel, you, you just feel maybe you might have as much importance as, like, you, most of the time you go around feeling a bit of a parasitical, useless person, but, <laughs> but then, you know, compared with, say, teachers or doctors or, you know, people who really make a difference. And then when you get a letter like that, you think, well, I've made a difference too. Like, I, I have made so. a bit of a difference. <laughs> You know, it's just such an amazing feeling. So that is another amazing thing. Yeah. I think you make a much bigger difference than you think. Anyway, on that note, thank you so much for joining us today and for having a chat with us, Catherine. Oh, thank you. There you go, Catherine Jinks. Well, that was really interesting. And, of course, you know, I am quite familiar with Catherine's work um, as a children's author, Mm. um, but I'm really – I found it, found it fascinating that she, you know, Trove was such a great source of oh. info. And do you, do you use Trove? Have you been there? Yeah, yeah. So um, I've previously used Trove just, you know, researching things here and there, but not usually for things quite so historical. Uh, but the other day, actually, probably inspired by the conversation with Catherine, I looked up um, a, a Sydney personality who was around the time of the late 1800s uh, because I can't even remember why he popped into my head, but I looked him up and I was on there for like way too long, uh, just discovering all sorts of things about, you know, his life and and eventually his death in his uh, tragic death in 1902. And um, it's something that, of course, you can go to Trove, that's T-R-O-V-E dot N-L-A gov.au and we'll put the link in the show notes but you can get lost in there and you can spend hours and hours and hours in there and yeah. I think that it's a great source of inspiration actually especially because yeah. you don't get those sorts of stories told in the same way these days no that's very true very mm. true I'm going to go and have a little poke around in there myself I think and yeah, see what I can careful. come up with be careful mm, because disappear can, down the rabbit hole. Yes, absolutely. It's um fascinating. And now I've found more about this person. I want to like find out more and more. And I suspect I'll be spending even more hours on Trove. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yes. Uh, all right. So that brings us almost to the end of this week's episode. Al, what will you be doing in the coming week? Well, pretty much just a you know, continuation of all the various thousand things I've been doing for the last few weeks. Um, I, you know, the, uh, the launch of the book of secrets, the first book in the Adaban cipher series is coming, you know, it's a four weeks away and, uh, you just, this is the point where you start, things really start to heat up, um, for authors, you know, from that perspective, um, yeah. I'll start. To, yeah, I'll start to get the guest post requests, and I, my, I know the publicity department at a shed has started to put things in motion. Um, it's also the time that you start to anxiously begin to wait for reviews, um, yeah. and 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 things like that. And um, it's uh, yeah, it's a it's a really uh, interesting time, and of course, it all culminates on the 12th of September when the book is published and as we've discussed wow. before, that's kind of like a bit of an anticlimax in many ways. <laughs> but um, in actual fact, this year though, the um, 
it might be a little bit more interesting because I, I'm I'm actually booked in to do a radio interview uh, with ABC mm. Illawarra on that day to talk about the book and things like that. So um, that's you know so that's what I'm saying. Like I'm already working you know for five weeks out um, with my di- my diary filling up rapidly. Yes. Um, and of course it's book week next week, so I have some oh, yes. some author talk dates and you know it's just it's a really busy month. I'm I'm just. Um, full steam ahead with all the various aspects of my author life. Um, what about you, Val? What are you doing? Well, 12th of September, that's exciting. So what I secretly do, and I did this on the weekend actually um, when I go to bookshops. So on the weekend when I went to my local bookshop because uh, it was, you know, visit your bookshop day or your national mm, Love your bookshop day. day. You love your bookshop day. And uh, there was, because uh, we recently interviewed Tamsin Janu on her mm-hmm. latest book, book Blossom and it was there and, you know, I, I make sure I pull it out and make it front-facing. <laughs> <laughs> I do so, love a little bit of subtle merchandising. You know. If you see the Mapmaker Chronicles in your local bookshop, oh, please yeah. turn it face out, take photos, send selfies, tell the entire world that it's there. <laughs> so I'll be doing that on the 12th of September at my local bookshop when I, I see your book and I'll <laughs> make it front-facing. I love it. Like it's like a secret <laughs> army of merchandisers out there. It's great. That's love right. It. But apart from doing that, I am finishing creating the course How to Write Media Releases because Ooh. that's something that I teach a lot of corporates and a, a lot of you know groups who need to get their message out there, uh, people who um, want to have a particular product or service or business to promote. Um, it's really, really useful because your media release can be made or break if you're sending it to a journalist. If it's poorly written, they're literally they're literally going to press the delete key. Right. Um, uh, and in, in the worst case scenario, they will send it to their journalist friends and say, oh, my God, can you believe this media release? It's so bad. But yeah. if it's written well, then you are really increasing your chances of um, getting into um, – getting into the media and getting media coverage. So make sure you do register your interests for that because there's going to be a special pre-launch offer for those people who have registered their interest and hundreds of people have already registered their interest. So just mm. go to writercenter.com.au slash media. That's writercenter.com.au slash media to register your interest. So I will be doing that. I will also be um, – doing some painting because I have some commissions on my painting, which still freaks me out. <laughs> I seriously, you are just amazing. I can't believe that you decide you're going to do some painting and suddenly you've got commissions. <laughs> it's, it's freaking me out still, oh, but anyway. It's such a you thing to do though. It's amazing. <laughs> it's great fun. And I will probably, because I've, it's been, Oh, in the it's just been one of those things that's stayed in the back of my head ever since I have been trawling around on Trove about this Sydney personality who uh, was, you know, popular in his day. And I feel like there's something there and I'll probably be researching him even more and more, not just on Trove but wherever I can oh. – wherever I can – find stuff on him so uh we'll see where that goes you never know look forward to updates yes so remember everyone you can get the show notes at so you want to be a writer.com.au and you can find allison online where You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me 
on Instagram and Facebook at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Valerie, where do we find you? Yes, you'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O on Twitter and Instagram. And of course, you will find both of us in the Facebook group. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook and we would love to connect with you there. So thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. 